0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Good Friday 2022. I hope you all have a wonderful Easter weekend. And we are joined today uh, by Robert Trasinski, who is the editor of Symposium on Substack, also a contributor to the Bulwark, a columnist for Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics and culture, which is published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So, Robert, welcome back on the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me again. So before we, we, we dive into some of the things that you have been writing about, uh, just the, the, the news this morning is, you know, in, in some ways it's sort of same old, same old. In other ways, it is extraordinary, which feels like I've been saying the same thing since 2017. The text messages from Utah Senator Mike Lee, the legendary constitutionalist, uh, the text messages to Mark Meadows after the election, in which he slavishly expresses his enthusiasm for helping Donald Trump use state legislatures to overturn the election. It's really amazing. I mean, in and of itself, it's amazing, but particularly if you remember who Mike Lee used to be and what he claims to be, once again, we, we see this transformation of you know strict constructionist constitutionalist to geez, Mark, uh, I'm on the phone with all these legislatures, and maybe there is a path to overturn this, this election. I don't know what you can say about it, but uh, not a great day for Mike Lee.
1: Well, you know, it, it's something I think is going to be a topic when we get to my articles, That is this the schizophrenia of this Jekyll and Hyde personality of people claiming to have ideals and be devoted to these principles, but at the same time also having that partisan conspiracy theorist uh, uh, wing notch kind of aspect to them and that's always been a little bit of attention there and it's just it's it's gotten to this incredible levels of schizophrenia uh since, since basically in the trump era
0: well, exactly, and good segue to the second story. Um, J.D. Vance, uh, the former best-selling author, never Trumper at one time, who has now become, you know, a a MAGA, QAnon adjacent troll, who was you know proud to get the endorsement of Marjorie Taylor Greene, and of course, we found out yesterday that it looked like Donald Trump was uh, going to endorse him imminently and may do so, may have done so by the time people listen to this podcast, but Republican officials are desperately scrambling this morning to talk Trump out of it. But, you know, again, you see this transformation of J.D. Vance into what it's become. And and I'm sorry for people who think that I've raised this question over and over again. It's because it's evergreen. Were these people always like that or did something break in them? And I think that's something we're going to talk about, Robert. But the J.D. Vance transformation, it's not unique, but it's certainly remarkable. And there was sort of, I suppose, something inevitable about the fact that uh, he, you know, remaking himself the way that he did, that Donald Trump would look at him and said, yeah, here's somebody that I broke. Here's somebody that said bad things about me, but I have completely broken. And his self-humiliation just gives me so much pleasure.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely something to it. But but the other wider context I want to point out with that Ohio story, the, the, the endorsement of, of Vance, is that it's not that Trump is endorsing the pro-Trump guy and then there's another against a, a non-Trump guy. Is that there's nothing but pro-Trump guys. And a lot of these endorsement stories like Mehmet Oz and Pennsylvania, it, it's it's not that there's a battle going on. Unfortunately, it's not that there's a battle going on between the Mago wing of the party and the non-Mago wing. Right. It's all the Mago wing and it's really just It's a contest over who gets the specific endorsement of Donald Trump.
0: This is a very important point uh, because it's not Trump versus anti-Trump. It is it is mega mega MAGA versus hyper MAGA. (laughs) So uh, caution for people who engage in the wish casting of thinking that, well, this is a sign that Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party is fading. I mean, it's been this this massive suck up uh, contest. And I I wrote in my newsletter this morning. You know, about Josh Mandel. Josh Mandel is one of the one of the leading candidates who has done everything imaginable, I think, to suck up to Donald Trump. And I wrote, it's hard to imagine what more shape shifting, big lying or deplorable groveling Josh Mandel could have done to win favor with uh, Mar-a-Lago. But he is being introduced to the world beneath the bus, uh, where he will find a good deal of company among his fellow disappointed lick uh, once again, just another guy who did everything he could, David McCormick in Pennsylvania, Mo Brooks down in Alabama, just, you know, spent the last year engaging in Trumpian toe licking only to be kicked to the curb. And it's like, guys, when are you going to learn that this is the play?
1: Yeah, well, you know, part of it is that I think Trump enjoys the idea of everybody coming to his throne and groveling. So he makes them go through this, whether he's going to endorse them or not. But also, I think what people don't realize is, you know, Trump is a guy who came out of reality TV. He came out of professional wrestling. He came out of the tabloid gossip columns. So there's, I guess, a certain pattern, though, because um, he tends to endorse the guy who is more of a media celebrity creation, right? So Seth Mandel is a guy who, you know, is in uh, Ohio politics, but I've never heard of him outside of Ohio. People haven't heard of him. Uh, but J.D. Vance had a movie made by Netflix and had a best-selling book, and he's more of a of a media personality creation. And I think the same thing with Oz, uh, Doctor Oz, is that I think Trump, you know, there is a pattern to these endorsements that Trump tends to be attracted to people who are also creatures of the media ecosystem. The way he is.
0: I think that's exactly right. Okay, let's talk about some of the recent things you have written about national conservatism and about the state of the Republican Party. You had a very, very provocative piece in The Bulwark this week. Did the John Birch Society win in the end? And I suppose I I, I ought to acknowledge that maybe there are some people – under the age of uh, 70, who don't remember the John Birch Society. But this was the the far right-wing conspiracy theorist of the 1950s and the 1960s who saw a communist under every bed, the leader of the John Birch Society, went so far as to suggest that Dwight Eisenhower was a, what, a knowing agent of the Communist Party. I mean, that was, they were that extreme. And one of the great legends of uh, the conservative movement and the Republican Party is that in the early 1960s, William F. Buckley Jr. recognized that if conservatism was going to have any future whatsoever, they needed to purge the nut jobs. They needed to get rid of people like the Birchers, uh, and he and he successfully was able to do that using the you know the the bully pulpit of of National Review, um, and and so you know part of the foundational story of modern conservatism is, and then having purged the conspiracy theory nut jobs, the conservative movement went on to elect Ronald Reagan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you're suggesting that maybe the John Birch Society won in the end. Tell me about
1: that. So, and I'll say that, you know, I call it sort of the folklore of the conservative movement, because it is exaggerated to a certain extent that the, uh, I know that there was a Buckley began to to criticize them, but there was a certain reluctance to go too hard against the Birchers before the 1964 election, because the idea was, well, these guys are active. They're sort of the the MAGA guys of the day. These guys are active, and they're engaged, and they're very, very passionate, and we, we don't dare alienate them going into the election. And it was really in 1965 after the, the the Goldwater loss that it really came down to brass tacks and it was like, let's get rid of these people. And part of the reason is they realized these guys were a uh, – uh, these guys dragged down the Republican ticket, dragged down the Republican uh, uh, prospects by you know giving conservatism, giving Goldwater and, and all these people a bad name. But you had this thing where Buckley on the intellectual side – And the political front men like Goldwater and Reagan all sort of got behind this idea of let's let's suppress the John Birch Society. And I I think there, you know, it really is true that they did sort of push it to the sidelines and they did create a, a conservative movement that was more based on ideas rather than conspiracies. I mean, I think you and I have talked before about the sort of irritable mental gesture version of conservatism that was around in the in the 40s and 50s where it was like the world is changing and things are different and i'm grumpy about it and 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 there wasn't a real sort of intellectual program or or there weren't real principles behind that form of conservatism it was more just things were better when i was a kid and i don't like these new people um and and the birch society sort of came out of that that it was a very unintellectual and anti-intellectual thing it wasn't that well. We have an ideological context, and we have to advocate certain ideas in order to win. It's like no, it's all a plot. They are lying to you, and and uh, I mean, literally, uh, you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower is a Soviet agent. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of a, an unintellectual way to explain what was going on in the early, you know, in, in the early years of the Cold War.
0: But also a response to the anxiety of that time. I mean, what you write is that it was an an easy explanation for the various setbacks in the early years of the Cold War, you know, the Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, the communist takeover of China, Soviets getting nuclear weapons. It was all a secret plot and they were lying to you. So this was the the secret knowledge that explained why all these terrible things were happening.
1: Conspiracy theory is always like, you know this idea that, well, just a secret cabal out there unknown to us is directing these things. And it exempts you from the work of having to figure out what's really going on and what policies do you actually need to enact? What kind of political change? Who are the best leaders? What are the ideas that we have to have and advocate and and argue for in order to, to get a good result? And it was a big deal. Oh yeah, and it was a very big deal. Uh, uh, Goldwater complained that half of the people in Phoenix are are in the John Birch Society, and it's not just I think the cactus drunks he called, not just you know the the sort of low but it's it's the it's the re- otherwise respectable people who have bought into this and that allure of the conspiracy theory is huge because it, it it is this explanatory framework for what's happened in the world and how have things gone wrong. But like I said, it's a shortcut. It's it it circuits. The actual process of figuring out what's going on in the world and how to fix it, because you imagine that, oh, if I just, you know, there'll be the storm and, the, you know, this is the QAnon thing. There'll be the storm and the conspiracy will, will be exposed. They'll all be sent off to Gitmo and everything will be okay. And, you know, it's not going to happen like that. That's it's It's a fantasy. Uh, it's sort of a political revenge fantasy because you know, it usually ends up with your uh, the people you don't like politically being imprisoned. Um, but it is a fantasy that that's the way it's actually going to work. You actually have to do the job of making arguments, and you have to have Milton Friedman do free to choose, and you have to have, um, well, I'll pick one that Buckley wouldn't have liked. You have to have Ayn Rand writing novels and writing articles uh, in defense of capitalism, uh, you know, in addition to getting rid of the he was,
0: he was not a fan,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, you know, in addition to getting rid of those people, he tried to get rid of Ayn Rand unsuccessfully, I'm glad to say.
0: You, you you write that it looks like the Birchers are back and winning, and you just connected the dots, connected the dots between the conspiracy theories of the 1950s and 1960s to what we have right now. You argue that QAnon is a successor of the John Birch Society. So, what is the relationship between QAnon and the John Birch Society conspiracy theories?
1: How do they relate? As I understand, the Birchers are still around. I mean, it's a very small group that hasn't been – I'm not saying they're pushing this, but they're still around, and they're all in on QAnon. I think the, the relationship is that it's the same mindset coming back. It's the same conspiratorial mindset, and it gives you all the same elements that, well, there's a secret conspiracy, a secret cabal. I I saw an interesting presentation by an expert on conspiracy theories, and he said there's really only one conspiracy theory, and everything's just a variation on that. And the one conspiracy is the cabal, right? There's a secret cabal of elites who are running everything behind the scenes. And it's sort of you know the temptation of the person from the outside saying things are going wrong, things are going aren't going the way I would like them to. There must be an explanation, and the explanation must be that secretly somebody's doing something. And Now, in this version, it's not the communists. In this version, it's a secret cabal of pedophiles who are trying to you know cover up and and enable their abuse by controlling our political system. But the idea that that's the explanation for everything. It's the explanation of what's really going on behind the scenes. So I sort of trace all of the parallels uh to to that. You know, this idea of the secret cabal that runs everything. You have, you know, normal and respectable people in the rank and file of the movement suddenly sort of getting infected in a way with these crackpot theories. Um and also I think a big thing that fits in with the sort of the era of Trumpism is this idea that Only they are the ones really opposing what's going on, and anybody who's who's uh, you know any David French type of person who is uh, trying to hold on to our normal classical liberal principles is a weak need appeaser, and only the conspiracy theorists are the ones really opposing what's going on.
0: See the, the, what's interesting, though, is as you go back and you read that, you go back and you look at the paranoid style in American politics. It really does describe uh, the you know QAnon, and as you point out, you know we tend to think of our culture wars as new, but they're just recycled from another era. So, but explain how how did we get from the international communist conspiracy to the global network of pedophiles? What is the what is the flex there? Why the obsession with pedophiles? What's the background there?
1: Well, first of all, this is part of what I've, I'm saying about how the, the culture wars are never new because uh, I'm old enough to remember, I think with the McMartin preschool case where oh you had gosh, this yeah. Satanism panic going on uh, in the 80s. And there was this preschool mm-hmm. where the children there were supposedly being secretly abused by this, this shadowy Satanists. And people actually went to jail charged with this. And of course, it turns out this was all it was all a, f- a product of uh, overzealous prosecutors asking leading questions to you know 3 or 4 and 5 year old kids and the kids basically just echoing back what the questioners wanted them to hear but none of it had ever actually happened but it it fit into this wider thing of you know the satanism panic and the idea of that there was something that's been in conservatism from the very beginning which is that the, the the concern that religion is losing its grip on society, and if religion is losing its grip on society, you know the answer must be that there's a secret cabal of of Satanists and and pedophiles, et cetera. You know, that there and also this came in the context of you know homosexuality that homosexuality in the 70s had become much more 60s and 70s had become much more accepted it was on its way to becoming even more accepted and it the 80s does not look like a high point compared to today if you're gay so in the 1960s though you had people
0: like Reagan and Goldwater and Buckley that went along with pushing the conspiracy theorists to the fringes now, number one, we don't have any gatekeepers like Buckley who are able to do that. But the real big difference, as you point out, is that Donald Trump, rather than you know, being a leader of the party, rather than you know, pushing them to the, to the fringes, his sympathy for, for Q really did help ease it into the conservative mainstream. That's one of the most dramatic differences that while the Republican Party at one time understood the danger, Donald Trump said, yeah, come on in.
1: Waters, water's fine. Yeah. So one of the signature things of this uh, current thing is 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 uh, my former federalist colleague, Molly Hemingway, basically going out there and more or less accusing Mitt Romney of being a a pedophile or a pedophile sympathizer uh, because he's not backing this this, you know, QAnon stuff. Uh, and so, you know, the thing is, Mitt Romney is exactly the sort of person who would have been out there uh, pushing the, you know, the the crazies and the conspiracy theories off to the margins if he were still at the center of the party. Um, so,
0: yeah, I, I suppose that is the equivalent of I, Eisenhower is a secret communist and Mitt Romney is a secret pedophile, right? I mean, there's you, exactly you, you, you can, it's equally plausible, yeah, and no, and nobody's going to uh, cast the crazies out again. Okay, so I want to talk to you about this. This relates to this. Your second piece that you wrote about the national conservative movement. Now, for people who are not familiar with it, this has been a sort of a resurgent uh, movement on the right. The hyper nationalists who, you know, really uh, are, you know, authoritarian adjacent, who look to Viktor Orban and some of them actually look to Vladimir Putin as sort of role models for creating a, a much more virtuous state. Um, And and they're having a difficult time, uh, I think, reconciling that with some of the developments recently. So I want to I want to dive into this whole phenomenon of America first hyper nationalist conservatism on the right. Let's do that right after this. This is Charlie Sykes, and I want to tell you about famous smoke shop. A good cigar is a reward. It's a tradition. At Famous Smoke Shop, they know all about it, American-owned and independent. Famous Smoke is your neighborhood cigar shop, no matter where your neighborhood is. As a matter of fact, Famous Smoke Shop was recently named the best place to buy cigars online by both Cool Material and Cigar World. Now in their 83rd year, Famous Smoke continues to offer the authentic cigar shop experience. Decades' worth of cigar knowledge, a huge selection of premium cigars, and low prices that every cigar enthusiast will love. Famous Smoke Shop offers a huge selection of over a 1,000 brands to choose from. You'll find incredible deals on everyday cigars and highly rated classics, including Romeo, Monte Cristo, Acid, Macanudo, Oliva, and Fuente. Plus, every purchase is backed by their 30-day Famous Freshness Guarantee. So if you want your cigars fresh and delivered fast, it has to be Famous Smoke Shop. I receive my cigars from Famous Smoke Shop, and I love how simple it is to purchase. And when there's a special occasion... I love to be able to go to my humidor and find one of the special cigars. It's spring here in Wisconsin, and I have to tell you, there's nothing nicer than going out on a nice, cool spring evening and lighting up one of these cigars. I don't have to do it on a daily basis, but knowing that they're there, and knowing how easy it is to replace them is one of the things that I really look forward to these days. So here's an exclusive offer for my listeners. To save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more, go to Fame famous-smoke.com that's famous-smoke.com and use code bulwark at checkout to save $20 off your purchase of $100 or more you'll get your favorite cigars delivered direct from their humidor to yours that's promo code bulwark for $20 off your purchase at famous-smoke.com great cigar deals only at famous-smoke.com and remember to use promo code bulwark Okay, we are back with Robert Truszynski, who is the uh, editor of Symposium on Substack and a contributor to uh, Discourse, which is uh, uh, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And Robert, you had a, uh, I thought a really valuable piece about the real meaning of national conservatism. Let, let's talk about what that is. You describe it as a movement that's trying to cobble together a fantasy version of nationalism in which a strongman leader would use the power of the state to promote traditional values – particularly religious values and suppress the cultural influences of today's woke elite elites while also managing the economy to provide well-paying blue collar manufacturing jobs for all. So in some ways it's kind of the, this attempt to provide an intellectual gloss to some of the Trumpian impulses. So how's it going?
1: (laughs) Well, like I I put it in the piece is that, you know, the the greatest curse you can put on an intellectual is may somebody put your ideas into practice. Uh, because it's very really easy to construct a theory that sounds great and looks like we're all going to be living back and leave it to beaver. I did a piece for a discourse a while back called TV land economics about this, this fantasy that we're going to go back to this sort of, you know, the the man works and goes off at his factory job and comes home and the, the, the wife stays home and, you know, vacuums and in, in pearls and this sort of traditional family and traditional uh, economic organization, this nostalgic approach is very easy to create a theory that says, oh, we're going to go back to this, you know, this nostalgic version of the 1950s as portrayed on television. Then, you know, when somebody actually puts it into practice, the reality never matches the brochure. And what we're seeing with, I think, <laughs> partly I mean, Viktor Orban is sort of the the one sort of plausibly semi-successful version of this they can point to, but the thing is that Orban's been treading this line of two leaders in Europe, in in uh, uh, in Hungary and in Serbia, who are basically treading a a pro Russia line during the current war in Ukraine, and I think the war in Ukraine really shows if you take this all the way, if you. If you impose this nationalist vision with with complete thorough uh, consistency, you get to what Putin has done in Russia, where you have the strong man who's totally in control, who there's no dissent, and who has no limits on what he can uh, – on the carnage that he can impose in, in the name of his vision. And I say specifically that, that Putin has – is very much – his whole regime is based on the same kind of nostalgic – vision of restoring traditional Christianity. At the center of things, he, he has this alliance with the um, patriarch of Russian Orthodox Church.
0: So this is the thing that, and I read a lot of um, their their manifestos and their articles about this uh, this this nostalgic view of the world, which you know has an attraction. You know, why can't things be like they were in the nineteen fifties when people were were virtuous and they may not have been wealthy, but they were happy and all of these things, and they would talk about the the fact that the, we should use the power of the state. Uh, to impose these kinds of virtue. And I was wondering, okay, could you be more specific? There was always a lack of specificity. And I wonder, you know, when you talk about Christianity, what do you mean? You talk about Christian values. And clearly, I think that the The focus on um, homosexuality now kind of fills in a blank because ultimately that's where they were going is we needed to do something about, you know, drag queen story hour and all of those those things, that obsession. And this is also the through line. You know, Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin have both passed uh, really restrictive uh, legislation regulating and restricting Uh, discussion of homosexuality, homosexual practice, etc. So this is one of the things that seems to be uh, the connective tissue that links um, some of the right-wingers in the United States with the authoritarians in Europe, which is otherwise kind of puzzling. Like, you know, when did American conservatives ever look to, say, Hungary in the past? I mean, I suppose they looked at Franco and Salazar and Portugal and things like that, but that's a weird flex. So is... Uh, you know, it, it, does that explain sort of the centrality of the attack on uh, gays and lesbians that's going on right now?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think it goes to this idea that the sense that traditional religious morality no longer has as much of a hold. It, it, it's they have often a very apocalyptic view that you know we're we're being expunged, we're being attacked from everywhere but where that hits emotionally for a lot of people is the sort of gay panic i mean this is a long history decades before the don't say gay bill that they just passed florida had a law barring um homosexuals from being school teachers and this was to try the number of these laws some of them are still even on the books about you know homosexuals can't be school teachers well why well because they'll be grooming or or influencing or recruiting or corrupting the children and so you, there there's this whole reserve back there that for some reason, homosexuality is what really pushes the button emotionally as the outward sign of this loss of the hegemony culturally of traditional Christian morality. Patriarch Kirill uh, from the Russian Orthodox Church gave this speech, this weird speech that he gave, where he said, you know, there's a sign of the dominance of this, this Western liberal attitude, which is you have to have a, a gay pride parade. He called it a gay parade, I think. You have to have a gay parade. And we will never permit this in Russia, because this is a sign of our submission to this uh this this outlook that wants to destroy traditional religious belief. So that pushes a button on this side of the Atlantic and it, it really pushes a button for for our uh for Patriarch Kirill and 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 again, Hungary also has had this similar quote unquote gay propaganda uh laws that they're pushing.
0: Well, and, and there's also other elements to uh, what's going on in Hungary. You, you describe, you know, Orban's rules of kind of populist authoritarianism. I mean, he, he wins these elections, which which are rigged, but but you know, he's also you know consolidated his party's control over you. Right? I mean, about over education, mm-hmm. particularly higher education. He's used punitive laws to chase out the Central European University founded by George Soros. Then he restructured the other public universities under foundations run by his loyalists and his cronies. I and mean, he's diverted billions of dollars to support an elite conservative college. And obviously, this sort of sends a tingle up the, you know, up the leg of, of many uh, American conservatives. I think, imagine having a government that would do what we wanted to academia. But you also point out, though, and I, I think this is kind of the key, that th- it's not really about the results. It's about the lure of power. What do you make of the fact that CPAC decided that it was going to hold its conference or hold a conference in Hungary in May. Why would CPAC go to Hungary?
1: Well, they they go there for the same reason Tucker Carlson went there. I mean, for Tucker Carlson you could see the the obvious appeal because in these authoritarian societies like like Hungary and especially like Russia, if you're a state-supported broadcaster, if you're the guy, you know, who's on TV, who's there spouting the Putin line in Russia, these guys got immensely rich. They got this basically guaranteed dominance over the media market. So you can see the the appeal. And I think that the thing is, it's basically what it is, is that what, what Hungary has is cancel culture, except we're in charge of it, right? So it, there's all this discussion yeah, of free speech exactly. and cancel culture is really terrible. But the old rule that keeps coming back up is free speech for me, but not for thee. So their fantasy is what if we had a system where, you know, we had the, the death grip on, on, on the higher education, we controlled the universities instead of getting indoctrinated in the universities by all these woke professors, they were getting indoctrinated by us. And that I think is the big appeal to the conservative intellectuals that, you know, basically they'll all get positions at the state run university, uh, or state controlled university. Interesting thing is CPAC was originally going to have their event out there in March, uh, And then they delayed it. I think that probably has a little something to do with what's happening next door in Ukraine.
0: Well, what I've argued is that, you know, obviously, um, some folks on the American right, uh, it's extremely awkward and growing more and more awkward every day uh, for them to express admiration for Vladimir Putin, unless, of course, you're maybe Tucker Carlson, Uh, but they, they can launder their support for Putin through Orban because, you know, we're not going to say anything nice about Vladimir Putin right now, but we are going to ally ourselves with Vladimir Putin's leading ally in, in, in Europe, in Europe. But uh, there's a couple of the quotes that you had in your piece that just really sort of slapped me here. Um, you quote uh, Claremont's Christopher Caldwell, who used to write for the Weekly Standard as well, who had hailed Putin's Russia. This is again, you know, I, intellectual conservative writer, you know, published in, you know, mainstream conservative publications, who's hailed Putin's Russia as a symbol of national determination. And Robert, you made a great point. You know, surely if there's a country that now serves as such a symbol, it's Ukraine, Um, And can I just read you what you wrote here? The actual conduct of Putin's war gives the lie to nationalist claims about putting moral values above shallow Western materialism. It is not merely the unprovoked initiation of an aggressive war, but the manner in which Russia has carried it out. Systematic mass killings in Bucha, the ruthless leveling of Mariupol, including the deliberate bombing of shelters for women and children, widespread rape, including the most horrific stories. They're the hallmarks of a war that is being prosecuted not for the goal of Russian security but to destroy Ukrainian society. And you juxtapose that with the admiration of America first nationalists
1: and you really get
0: this weird moment of serious cognitive dissonance. And that seems like a too light of a term.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things I point out there is that there's nationalism is sort of an ambiguous term. Right. It can mean a belief in the nation state as a form of social organization, uh, or it can be dedication to a particular nation. And especially if you know if you have an ethnic group that you think should have its own nation, if you're a Kurd or a Palestinian or whatever, it can mean the idea of of, of, of wanting to have a dedication to a particular nation state. But nationalism can also mean the, this sort of collectivist idea that uh, the individual and his rights and freedoms needs to be sacrificed for the wider national good of some larger entity, and that feeds into a sort of to, uh, authoritarian or totalitarian philosophy where you know the, the real meaning of nationalism in that version is everyone has to be sacrificed for the state and for the, uh, uh, the ruler of the state as the embodiment of the good of the nation. And I think that what we're seeing here is that that's what nationalism really means when they say this. They're not in it because of the nation nor for patriotism. They're in it for power worship.
0: Yeah, right. As you point out, misplaced power worship and <laughs> and you point out. And I think this was another really one of the things that, that I highlighted here is that Putin and his NatCon fanboys <laughs> made the same mistake because they have assumed built a lot of their philosophy on on this assumption that liberal democracies were weak and decadent right that freedom the pursuit of happiness made us foolish undisciplined narcissistic as opposed to the strong and moral and decisive authoritarian regime so obviously you know if you apply that worldview. To reality, you would imagine this like quick blow, like there's no way that liberal democracies would ever be able to stand up to, you know, a macho Christian like Vladimir Putin, who is just going to smash them. So Again, this is this has been a real attack and assault on their worldview, hasn't it? Because I mean, this is deeply ingrained about the decadence of liberal democracy and liberal democratic norms and the inability of liberal democracies to stand up against, you know, a centralized strongman, which, by the way, has been the. You know, uh, has has been a theme for much of the last century and a half, hasn't
1: it? Well, well, we talk about the culture wars being older than we think. This goes back to Athens versus Sparta. Yeah, you know, twenty five hundred years ago. You know, but you, know, you got, and that's the model. That's the model because you, you got this Athenian society that was fractious and and chaotic and, but also incredibly creative and had all the philosophers and 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 the sculptors and all that and then you had the spartan society that's regimented and uh orderly and organized totally around war and those are sort of the two models that uh, have have been lurking in the background since the dawn of western civilization and the the presumption is always that well the guys who are organized around war are always going to be stronger and they're going to be better and you know back in the day the athenian the, the spartans did temporarily defeat the athenians but then they they faded away and became irrelevant and it's the athenians that we remember as the big the big influence because they were the ones who produced all the culture and had the much more vibrant and uh creative and productive society and that's what i think we've seen coming out in in especially you know in the american history that the spartan types the ones who have the the regimented militarized societies are always assuming, because we have this regimented society, we're going to be stronger, we're going to be more decisive. We have, you know, on uh, Volk, ein Reich, and like Führer. We are more unified and we're going to be decisive. And they succeed for a time. But in the end, you have just such a more vibrant, productive, creative, growing society because of the freedoms that we have. And that makes us, in the end, much, much more powerful what happens is because we're less regimented, we can also be less decisive and we kind of, kind of faff about and, you know, Vladimir Putin is consolidating his dictatorship and threatening his neighbors for like 20 years. And we're sort of faffing around and not really sure and hemming and hawing how to respond and being very cautious. So he thinks, okay, I can get away with anything. And then like, you know, the Japanese after Pearl Harbor or the Germans in, in uh, World War Two, they discover, oh, wait a minute. Once these guys actually get focused on us, their capacity to act and their ability to fight back is way beyond what we ever expect.
0: This is fascinating. This is so interesting because we're seeing this played out for a new generation. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the the, the contrast between the morale of the Russian soldiers and the, and the incredible morale and commitment and the courage of the Ukrainians. Well, the Ukrainians are fighting for their homes, but they're also fighting for their freedom, their, their, their individual liberty, uh, as opposed to fighting an army of conscripts.
1: Charlie, you, yeah, uh, at the Ballwork, you published a great piece uh, in the last week or so by a former U.S. Army commander from Europe recounting from his own experience how the Ukrainians basically rebuilt their military along Western lines, where it's not, you know, you have a colonel sitting there issuing orders to all these unmotivated conscripts. But where, you know, the Western model of war is, especially the American model, is Every NCO and every officer is out there showing initiative in the field, making decisions for himself, engaging in problem solving. And it's this, it's this liberal Western model where we empower the individual, right? And, and the individual is expected to be motivated and – Actively thinking and making his own decisions, and it turns out to be you know a thousand times more effective on the battlefield.
0: I mean, maybe this is now the legend, but I, I have this image in my mind as as we're talking of the of the Ukrainian citizen soldier, um, with with it you know armed with a javelin, taking out a column of tanks. I mean, this the the way in which this is planned, and in each one of those individuals, you know, is is motivated, is committed and the russian soldiers that are coming in many of them have no idea why they're there they have no idea what their purpose is they have not been supplied they they don't trust their government um they may have you know read the propaganda mm-hmm. this juxtaposition is so interesting now since we're doing a little bit of history and i was thinking about the 1930s uh, in the in the early 1940s, there was a huge uh, America First movement. Um, obviously, using the same title that, that we we ha- we have now, that uh, that argued very vociferously against the American involvement in World War II. And there were many prominent Americans who played a significant role in America First. But after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the vast majority of them said, "Okay, we were wrong. We need to change our point of view about this." And many of them went on to serve uh, bravely and and effectively in World War II. So there was there was uh, that shock of reality and people's minds were changed. Is there any evidence that you can see that any of these national conservative America firsters are looking at what's happening in with Russia and Ukraine and thinking, huh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we need to rethink. Because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I, I'm seeing them being very cautious about, well, I'm against the invasion and, and and being a little more cautious about saying nice things about Putin. But I don't see any evidence of any kind of fundamental rethinking on this. Uh, and partly it's because – you know it. well, two things. Partly because it's happening way over there. It's not happening to us here in America. So we can just still sit around to debate about it, but we're, we don't have any – any skin in the game you know we're not we're not the ones being if america were attacked by russia you would see them change i mean because the 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 public opinion would be so powerful against that but also i also want to make the point too that that we're talking about this small group of intelligentsia of the nationalist conservatives it's actually a relatively small group that is from what I'm seeing is not generally representative of the rank and file of the conservative movement or of the Republican Party, which is generally, you know, we, you know, people tend to react emotionally to, you know, they have these, they tend to react most strongly to something that they're sort of prepared over many, many years to react to. And I think there's so, so many, uh, especially older Republicans who have, you know, we all grew up watching Red Dawn and we, we know the Russians are the bad guys. But one of my favorite details coming out of Ukraine, by the way, is there's some guy in Ukraine who's going around uh, spray painting Wolverines on the side of destroyed Russian tanks that that just gives me an endless thrill.
0: Well, yeah, it, this there, there, there is a lot of history there. And the only reason why. I think we need to take these net cons seriously. There are people who say, look, the the vast majority of Republicans, the vast majority of elected officials are anti-Russian, are pro-Ukrainian. So why do you devote any time talking to the appeasers, uh, these national conservatives who are really a fringe? They would be an almost insignificant fringe. On the right, if it were not for the fact that the former president of the United States and the perhaps the future president of the United States, the uh, master of the Republican Party clearly has sympathy for them, if it was not for the possible restoration of Donald Trump, they would be absolutely insignificant but given that fact given the fact that we started off the show talking about you know Trump endorsing maybe endorsing JD Vance I mean JD Vance's comments were you know frankly I don't care about Ukraine and the you know maybe the future president of the United States looks at that and go that's the guy I want so that's why these people are not that insignificant
1: yeah, and and people have tried to get Trump to say something bad about Vladimir Putin and he he, he they've never been able to get him to do it he've he never do it. yeah he, he will not condemn Putin I think he admires Putin he views – he, he, he sort of views him as this is the kind of leader I would like to be, this strong, tough, decisive guy. Um, but also the other thing that, that makes these people significant is that you know, conspiracy theorists were on the fringes for a long time. Uh, you know, The John Birch Society people were on the fringes for a long time, and they came back into the mainstream. They've come roaring back into the mainstream. And the thing we were talking about earlier that you have all these people like Christopher Caldwell who used to – right for the weekly standard. and these people who used to sort of be considered sane uh, reasonable conservatives, uh, even intellectual conservatives who have then migrated to the, the crazy fringe in the last few years. That's the reason why we're concerned about these ideas is that you know if, if you don't oppose these ideas early and often, they have the potential to come back into the into and, and become dominant in the conservative movement or in the Republican Party. I I remember that, that it, I think it was 2017, 2018, uh, there was, you know, Trump started saying nice things about Vladimir Putin and some of the Trump's people talking about how admiring what a strong leader he was. And the numbers of approval, for, you know, a positive opinions of Vladimir Putin among Republicans suddenly shot way up because you had a couple of prominent people saying that. So it shows you can't, you can't, I think we got complacent in sort of the '80s and '90s that oh we've got this you know there were so many conservative intellectuals who had come up and so many you know people who had had produced substantive books and ideas and this idea that oh this is an we have an intellectual ideological respectable movement here that you know isn't being run by its crazy fringes but it's being run by people who have you know serious uh, principles and consideration of those principles. And we got complacent to the fact that therefore we're okay, and we're not going to have that's not going to we're not going to lapse back into that. And then a lot of those people who seemed on the surface to be that way turned out, you know, the the conspiracy theories and the the crazy fringes were still lurking underneath.
0: And I had that same complacency. I I had the same um, misapprehension. You know, the other thing is, you know, since we've been talking about, you know, then versus now and, uh, you know, the what happened with the America First movement. In uh, in World War Two, this is also just a reminder that, that we used to have a shared national experience, uh, that there was a, you know, more or less coherent national narrative about what, you know, what Americans thought that no longer exists. We don't have the uniculture anymore or, we don't, or the shared culture we have. You know, everybody has their own their own silos, their own reality. So that it used to be that if you embraced, uh, you know, extreme nut job positions, you know, you you'd end up, you know, you know, pounding away at your typewriter with your crayons in your, in your basement. Um, now you become a fellow at the Claremont Institute. Uh, now you become a fellow at Hillsdale College. Uh, you're published in uh, the, the, the the Federalist. Molly Hemingway wins uh, wins the Bradley Prize. So we've created a universe in which there's not only no consequence for. Uh, these these positions that there are actual rewards, and you can sort of you know bathe in the in the admiration of your fellow of your fellow cranks uh, as as opposed to being treated like a pariah and and that that's very very different that you know and and why America does not come together anymore in the face of catastrophes or disasters or attacks
1: well i i don't know i think you can exaggerate that i i' I'm sort of an advocate of the idea that that we we tend to have a um a nostalgic view of the past and we kind of forget how crazy things actually were. Um, And, and so I think the history of the John Birch society, it sort of illustrates that, that the John Birch society was a huge phenomenon. It was, you there may have been more of a common culture, but this, this thing took off. It was very big. Or one of the other part of the background that I mentioned there is the American mercury. So, the American Mercury was sort of the leading conservative publication for a while in the 30s and 40s. It had, uh, you know, started by H.L. Mencken and some other people, and they had Henry Hazlitt, a great free market economist uh, who was ed- editing it for a while. So, it was this very respectable journal of ideas central to the conservative movement in the 30s and 40s. By the time the 50s had rolled around, it had gotten a new owner who was. A You know, a crackpot who pushed anti-Semitic theories and eventually hired uh, George Lincoln Rockwell, who's the, the leader of the American neo-Nazi party, eventually was you know hired at, at, at the American Mercury. So it shows that you had these big institutions that that could go off the rails, even in you know, in the idyllic, quote unquote, idyllic 1950s.
0: See, I guess, I guess my point on that, it was, and by the way, I'm, I am uh, reading uh, Terry Teachout's uh, brilliant uh, biography of Mencken, where he describes the beginnings of the American Mercury when the American Mercury was a really big deal. It was really the thing. It was hot. Um, and then it became this, this bizarre, you know, anti-Semitic uh, right wing, I uh, think. But see, you know, part of it, though, is that when it became, when it went, crazy, it became insignificant. It was really on the fringes. And so that's what used to happen. I mean, the American Mercury was very big in the 1930s. It was nothing. No one read it in the 1950s or the 1960s. And by the time that, uh, you know, we think of as these, you know, hyper modern uh, conservative movement, um, you know, the the era of, of Reagan, the John Birch Society, those people were you know, they they barely merited, a you know, a, a nod. They were so small and so insignificant. So that's what I meant by being sort of driven out that they just, you know, yes, you're right. You know, the John Birch Society was a very big deal until they were purged. And then they became like, you know, a, a bookshop and a strip mall. And that was it. Whereas now the people who embrace these extreme views are fetid and honored and published and and, and given sinecures.
1: Yeah, you know, and one thing to look at too is that uh, when Buckley managed to purge the John Birch Society, it was mostly after the 1964 election, mostly after a big defeat. And I'm wondering if, you know, m- uh, my hope is that Trump running again in 2024 might be that moment where, you know, if if that I, unfortunately I think the the midterm election is likely to be the opposite. It's going to be confer- confirmation. Aha, we're we're winning against the Democrats again. Uh, because the Democrats, you know, they 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 can't do the things that are required anyway. Well, that's a whole other show, but uh, uh but you know, if but if 2024, if Trump if Trump runs again and loses, that could be the moment where people say, "Oh, uh oh, this has been a dead end, and you know, this is dragging us down, and it's causing all the things we we, we were afraid would happen." Uh, with all the things they're trying to prevent got caused by this.
0: I've been waiting for that moment for six years now.
1: <laughs> but you know, there's got to be that real world correction at some point that, that hits. I agree. But, you know, watching watching what's going on in Russia right now, you can see, though, even, you know, Russia's getting a harsh real world correction and they're just digging and digging in deeper. If you look at Russian media, um, they're, they're digging in deeper to Putinism. It's almost it's, it's like he's consolidated his position in Russia, in Russian culture. Uh, because of this war. Uh, So, you know, it shows that it, it, it could take a while for a major disaster or defeat or something like that to even to just penetrate uh, in and, and to, to discredit a view.
0: Robert Truszynski, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Robert is editor of Symposium on Substack and a columnist for Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And you can read his piece, Did the John Birch Society Win in the End in the Bulwark of All Places? So, Robert, uh, good to talk with you. Hope you have a great Easter weekend. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Do you hate hearing ads? If so, I've got a solution for you. Join Bulwark Plus, where members enjoy ad-free editions of this show and all the podcasts in our Bulwark network, like Beg to Differ with Mona Charon and The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell. There's also the member-only podcast, The Secret Show, and The Next Level with Tim Miller. You can give a Bulwark Plus membership a try for the next 30 days for free. Simply go to thebulwark.com slash Charlie to claim your free trial today. This offer is exclusively for listeners of this podcast, The Bulwark Podcast. That is thebulwark.com slash Charlie. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. and We'll be back tomorrow. I'll do this all over again.